Hey, what's up? So, Avalanche. Let's talk about it. What's, what's an avalanche? The snow comes down real fast, fierce, gains momentum. But I'm not talking about the natural disaster. Or if it's not really a disaster, I guess, if no one's around. But anyways, avalanche. What is it? You've heard about it. Now you're going to hear some more. It's an open source platform for launching decentralized finance applications, right? DeFi. That's what you want. Developers who build on Avalanche can easily create powerful, reliable, secure applications and custom blockchain networks with complex rule sets or build an existing private or public subnet. Right. I think what you should do right now is stop what you're doing. Even if it's listening to this podcast, stop, pull over, go to the gas station. If you need to go to a subway, there's a subway like everywhere. There's always a subway. All right. Right, there's always a Kroger. Just stop in a parking lot somewhere. Go to avalabs.org to learn more. All right, stop. Go to avalabs. That's A V A Labs, L A B S.org. Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. It's a Bitcoin Podcast. Hey, 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 everybody. <laughs> I'm trying not to have like a uh, like a cookie cutter podcast intro. Hey, guys. I don't like doing that. At all. Well, my name's D and I'm the host of Talks First of the Bitcoin podcast. <laughs> and I'm Jesse. I'm another host. And Corey is on a two-week sabbatical. So I know what you're thinking. Sabbaticals are longer than two weeks. And I'd say, quit being such a stickler, all right? Be more flexible in your definitions of things sometimes, all right? Now, Corey's Corey's taking some time to chill, man. He's got the baby, you know. He's got, uh, you know, that hair that he has to tend to, those luscious locks. You know, he needs some time. He said, man, I need some time to take care of this beard and this hair and this baby. That's all I got time for right now. I said, hey, man, I understand. I get it. So that's where we're at. Anyways, Jesse, how was your week? Oof. Mine was uh, it was pretty good. Um, still going on, going through the preparing for this test. And uh, there's just a lot involved in it. I think every day I kind of meet more people, study with more people, realize knowledge gaps more so. And it's nice. just, uh, it's it's a journey. It's a, it's a tough one. Yeah, so for, for those of you that don't know, Jesse's studying for the MCAT. 
Jesse's uh it's been quite a journey. Um but it's obviously difficult. Right? So next time you go to the doctor and the doctor's all chill, just realize that doctor put in some work to get to where they are. Alright. Understand that. Um so this is the Bitcoin pack podcast. Like so we talk about crypto, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, talk about a little bit of everything. Most of the times we're like philosophizing about stuff. And I'm talking to the new listeners in the audience because you don't know what you got yourself into. You're like, what's this Bitcoin thing? Let me hit up Google real quick. Google Bitcoin podcast. Oh, the Bitcoin podcast. That sounds right. You know? <laughs> and then you come in here and you're like, whoa, they've been doing this a while. Whoa. They're talking about some stuff I don't even know. Then stick around, right? Because crypto gets weird. It gets weird fast. But the more that you absorb yourself into it, the better you know what to do with your money. Because let's just be frank, you're here to make money. Everybody knows it, right, Jesse? Yeah, I mean, to some degree. You know what? It's interesting because the interview that we're going to be playing for you um Actually, it, it might be in a subsequent show, but the interview that I just did yesterday, uh, the man who runs BTC Parser, mm-hmm. Andrew Wrightstead, very interesting dude. And it's just interesting hearing everybody's motivations for why they got into the space, and he's no different. I I think you guys will look forward to that interview mm-hmm. when, it, when it does release. But, uh, Me? Yeah. It was simple, man. I was like, holy shit, I can make some money here. And then as I got into it, I started drinking the Kool-Aid. And let me tell you something. It was sweet, Jesse. They put three cups of sugar in this Kool-Aid, regular portions. I was I was getting diabetes off of the Kool-Aid. And um, it's really cool stuff, you know, separating money and state. That probably won't ever happen. We've gone too deep into it, but some really cool ideals that came from the space. And now we're just making cool tech and making money. So... Seems to be the gist of it. But there's been some news this week. Uh, Negro Dama strikes again. And who, who, wait, who, who was it? Let me see here. Let me, get Let me bring this article up here. All right. I need to just, you know, I think you just take all of my sound bites and string them together in a massive compilation. And then I should just, they should pay me to sit on a stage somewhere and just think about what the future of crypto looks like. But here we go. Legendary value investor Bill Miller. He's he's a, he's an old rich guy, and he says that every high net worth firm is going to get exposure to Bitcoin. It's inevitable, yeah. Jesse. Bitcoin's yeah. going to eat the world. And this is exactly kind of the conversation, the way the conversation went with uh, Andrew. It's just like I'm I'm just oh. double checking. Like I was like, you really think this thing? Like how how high do you think this thing is going to go? And he's like, I think it'll go to a million. I was like, no. No, it can't. I mean, like, it it can't. But, like, the timeline, right? The timeline. I always think about things in terms of timelines, right? Mm Mm-hmm. He's like, it could happen in five years. It could happen in ten years. I don't know when it'll happen, but it'll happen. And that's a guarantee. Basically, you know, 99.99% probability. I'm like, okay, like, I understand that. But, like, if I'm operating on a timeline here, and he, you know, he he quoted Warren Buffett, you know, when Warren Buffett said, um basically you just have to get used to rich or getting rich slow because you don't get rich fast 
and um, excuse me, with the, with the kind of tools that that Andrew develops, it's just interesting that he had the foresight to tap into Bitcoin back in 2010. He actually was relaying some of the stories. He was part of. Um, he he actually escaped Mount Gox, but who who he ended up using uh, later as uh, a custodian mm-hmm. ended up being tied back to Mount Gox, and so he kind of still participated in that, you know, bonanza. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just it's I think it's it's difficult to be in this space, <laughs> dude. Yeah, because it does seem outlandish, but think about like think about the rate of return even in the last ten years. Like, think about that. That Bitcoin has <laughs> Oh my god, I almost sneezed and I held it. I held I fought it off. <laughs> Bitcoin's gone from fractions of a penny to worth fifteen thousand dollars. Twice it's been worth fifteen thousand dollars or above now. Yeah. Like why can't it do that again? There's nothing keeping it from doing that again. I don't. I don't think it's that. It's it's that when when you were talking about the headlines, how high net worth people are really looking into Bitcoin as like a, a diversification. Solid yeah. Yeah. It's it's a solid diversification of of risk in their portfolio. But I, I think I always think like like what's next to solve? Sometimes I get like I guess it's what I was telling him is I was like maybe it's kind of zoomer of me that I think that. Bitcoin is for boomers. Yeah, it is. It's stupid, but go on. Yeah, yeah. What? I mean, it's just the gist. So, like, I'm looking for the ne- next best thing, like next thing to solve, right? And you know, that is what Bitcoin is weak at. Right? What is so, like, the next thing, though? Something that goes zoom zoom. Like, I don't know. What you like? Something cashy, right? So you want them to put a Mazda on the Bitcoin blockchain? I know, right? No, I I think. I think people are looking for. Wait a second! I don't feel like you fully appreciated that joke. I feel like you're okay. just glancing over it. Okay. Let's, so let's soak in. Like a Mazda. Just let it soak in, Jesse. Stop trying to demean the joke. Let it be a part of you. <laughs> All right. Now go on. Good God! All right. Yeah. I don't, I just I just think that there are, there are other problems to solve now. So so let Bitcoin be digital gold, right? Let all the high net worth people. Get sucked into that black hole. Okay, what's the next next thing to solve? What do you mean, like digital? <laughs> like you're you're so this is this see this is something that needs to change. All right, what do you? Mean? You young whippersnappers need to realize that things happen slow, right? Things if things are being done good and right, they're happening slow. All right, they're happening slow over time. It gives people time to let it seep into their soul, seep into their routine. You know what I'm saying? I think good things happen slow. Best sex I ever had, slow sex. Very slow. Very it wasn't that wasn't that like you hear all that shit going on that the youngsters do. No, it was slow. It was impassioned. I saw God through this woman's eyes. It was be- it was beautiful. It was amazing. <laughs> slow and hot. Did it take ten years? No. <laughs> maybe 10 minutes maybe 10 minutes max i think i think that's a that's a that's an okay time range for bitcoin to get to a million 10 minutes <laughs> yeah good things happen slow man like uh i don't know 
everything is relative, D, right? So when like, new yeah. I, when new landmasses form, that's not overnight. That's just slow. Years and years and years and thousands of years of pressure, and then kablooow, scow, and then it's like boom, there's an island, right? It's it's not like you, things. Good things happen slow. This this whole shit used to be one continent, bro. Pangea. And look at us now. Look at us. All over the place. Doing our own things. Speaking different you, languages. Think about this. If we were still Pangea, mm-hmm. we'd probably be... Would you think we are more co- cohesive as like a... Yes. As like a species? We would be like... We would be on Mars right now if we still had Pangea. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Just because... Uh, Another one of my D theories is that is the happenstance of geographics, a geographical. Uh, there's I used to had a I had a fancy name with it when I was drunk one night talking to Corey, but I was like the this this the less amount of space humans have to live together in, the faster they evolve sociologically. Not evolve, but but become peaceful and understand how to work with each other. Hmm. The faster that happens, because you really it's for it's a survival thing. It's like, oh, I don't like that fucking tribe. So I'm just going to kill them. Right. And that that's that's usually what happened in history. But at some point they don't because they're like, well, we just can't keep killing each other because that's that's a zero sum game. Like nobody wins that game ever. So we're just going to figure we're just going to get along. We're just going to figure out a way to get along. And they did. And then I think that's when that's when good things happen. Right? I just I can poke holes in what you're saying so easily. Oh, of course, because it's fucking <laughs> early in the morning and I'm barely spitting it out. But I think that like the further the more of the land there is, uh-huh. the more opportunity for somebody to just say, you know what? I don't like my neighbor. Fuck that guy. I'm just gonna move. They just go move, right? But when there's not a lot of area to do that, when they're like, I don't like my neighbor, fuck that guy. But shit, there is nowhere else to go. So if my life is going to be happy, I need to at least make sure I'm nice to that guy because I just can't. I can't deal with this day-to-day shit with that fucking asshole, right? You figure out a way to make it work. Hmm. But if I can just pick up and move 500 miles away, fuck it. Fuck him. Fuck you and your family, dude. I'm out. Fuck your tribe. I'm out. All right, that's what people did. <laughs> that's what they did. <laughs> Anyways, I don't know how we got to this. We're supposed, to be, we're supposed to be talking about crypto. All right, so Bitcoin, everybody's gonna be buying this new hotness. Ether is gonna be the second hotness. It, it was Litecoin at one point, but Litecoin's like doing its own thing. Um, it's not Satoshi, um, Charlie. You know, dumped his bags on everybody at four twenty. Uh that that is a wealthy smart man right now, old old Charlie <laughs> Lee. He's just smart as shit. But anyway, like December twenty was it December twenty eighteen or twenty seventeen? Just like unloaded. Mm-hmm. He's like, hey, I'm done. I'm out. Man. Anyways, anyways, so. There's a lot happening in crypto, honestly. Uh, we got wrapped Bitcoin on Coinbase. So now you can like take your Bitcoin and put it on the Ethereum network. You wrap it, you put it on the Ethereum network, and it can do all the things Ethereum can do. 
we have lightning pools, which is really awesome. And if you would like to listen to one of my other shows, Block Channel, uh, we're going to have the creator of the Lightning Network and the, the new lightning pools on there. Really cool guy. Um, not, not like the creator, but like the code creator, code developer um, of the Lightning Network. He's going to be on there and talking about lightning pools. And now you can put your Bitcoin on the Lightning Network in a lightning pool and have some of the same uh, properties that you gain from putting your Ether into uh, a pool, a liquidity pool. You can do liquidity pools on Lightning, which is opens up this huge new avenue of the functionality of Bitcoin now, where you have these massive liquidity pools on top of the Lightning Network. Um, it's kind of dope. So that's what I'm saying. Good things happen slow. Bitcoin may not happen. Bitcoin, like we've been looking at Schnorr and Taproot as upgrades to the Bitcoin code for a long time. They're finally in the code. They haven't been implemented, but they're in the code. So that gives Bitcoin even more functionality and, and increases the transaction per second even more. Now, what people don't realize is that the TPS has crept up from seven and what it used to be. And it's more like at 10. I know what you're thinking. Wow. <laughs> Jesse, I can see it on your face. You're like, wow, 10 from seven. Oh, my God. But um, that's at layer one, you know, at the, on the Lightning Network. It's arguably infinity faster. So, <laughs> what it is? Have you used the Lightning Network yet? I actually haven't. But I used it at the. Faster. It's infinity faster. I <laughs> used it at the um, Bitblock Boom conference two years ago, and let mm -hmm. me tell you something. It's just like using a debit card. Click, click, boom, done. So when that gets. When that gets all of its tweaks ironed out and Bitcoin actually has some sort of a cash system that you can use along with its digital gold system, then, you know, you, we never know. Bitcoin could be at the time when Bitcoin's worth a million dollars each. You don't worry about dollars anymore. Like that's that's the crazy thing that's going to happen is I don't know how it happens and what natural forces are going to make it happen. But when Bitcoin starts to be in and around like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars per Nobody's going to start basing it in dollars anymore. They're not. They're going to be basing it in something else or they're going to be basing things in it. And that's just how that works. But at, it, it's going to have to happen eight to 12 years from now, whenever these block happenings restrict the supply so much that you've got to start to have some uh, the volatility decreases. Right. So all these things, they like come together on Bitcoin. One, the volatility historically is decreasing exponentially. Exponential decay is going on with the volatility of Bitcoin. I know it doesn't feel like it because every time the price jumps a thousand dollars, MSNBC just jizzes in their pants. Or sorry, CNBC just jizzes in their pants, jizz everywhere. It's like the jizz, the Niagara Falls of jizz. That's a visual, right? But everything that people get all wild and crazy say is happening is actually happening. Sorry, it's not happening fast enough for you, Mr. Zoomer. <laughs> well, I was just like, what, what am I going to do with Bitcoin? Like, it doesn't have it. any like. That's not exciting. Yeah, it is. 
No, no, it's not. What's <laughs> not exciting about watching your number go up? It's like a pet rock. It's like this pet rock is worth more and more. Like, well, now you can throw it into a Lightning Network liquidity pool, and you can make interest off of your Bitcoin. That's exciting. Arguably, Lightning isn't safe yet, right? There are too many attack vectors. For it depends lightning. on how much you have in there. Who am I going to set up a Lightning Network like like a channel with? Like, who's my endpoint, right? Because really, that's really what you have to think about when you well, set up Lightning channels. It feels to me like you need to make some Lightning friends. But like, who am I going to? Feels who, like like like. The percentage you're going to earn on whatever you invest in, in basically opening up a channel, you have to open up a channel that gets used often in order to make money. And I don't know about you, but I think it's not worth it in terms of the amount of money you actually get versus just staking on some POS coin or some like wrap your Bitcoin and throw it on some liquidity thing for, you know, 5%. It's still going to be more than if you throw your money in lightning. All right. If, if the whole thing is about money, right? You're, there are faster ways of making more money. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. But it's not always, it's not all about money, but let's read this article here. Take it on back to our, what the header days. Oh, God. So Lightning Labs brings DeFi to Bitcoin with Lightning Pools. Lightning Labs developed software for the Bitcoin Lightning Network. All right. It's just released a new tool that allows Bitcoin users to get in on DeFi. Lightning Pool provides users with a way to trade Bitcoin funds locked up in the network. So Lightning Labs, software development firm for the Bitcoin Lightning Network, a system of channels that allows people to send Bitcoin quickly and cheaply, today announced a way to trade funds locked up in the network. Lightning nodes, computers that coordinate how to process Bitcoin transactions on the Lightning Network, don't have access to the information that helps them determine how to fund those transactions, and other node operators don't have a way to notify nodes that they need liquidity. Mm. To solve the problem, Lightning Labs today came out with a Lightning Pool, a marketplace where node operators can buy the liquidity they need to run the network. This helps everything run smoothly, but it also creates a new way of making money on the Lightning Network. Nodes that usually send liquidity can use the Lightning Pool's auction function to work out where to send liquidity to parts of the network under stress and earn money for doing so. Nodes that are set up to receive liquidity can use the pool's auction to work out the best channels to buy from. Said Lightning Labs in an explainer, Businesses and node operators can use pool to streamline their channel management process and focus on acquiring customers instead of access to liquidity. It also makes the network more reliable, resilient, and efficient for all participants. Okay. So with all intents and purposes, it feels like the Lightning Network is one like one huge flip on staking. It feels like you're staking your Bitcoin. It feels like a staking operation. Like that's what it feels like. If you got one or two Bitcoin, you stake the Bitcoin on the Lightning Network to allow other people to have their transactions go quick. Yeah, but the the transaction fees you're going to collect again are, I believe, I haven't looked at the numbers, but I mean, it's it's more risk. There's much more risk involved. I don't know. In there's more risk. You just don't make any fucking money. In terms of you don't make money and the amount of money that you'd have to risk, right? Um, I, I think that when I when we when I was talking to Juiced, he was actually talking to me about different types of vulnerabilities 
to your Bitcoin getting locked in, like your Bitcoin previous to like prior to Wumbo, right? That upgrade or whatever that they rolled out right before I um, interviewed him, there was no way to unlock your staked Bitcoin in a channel if the other party basically couldn't supply liquidity. So like there are developments happening, it seems like, but there were hiccups, there have been hiccups, and there probably still are hiccups to using Lightning. And like I said, like if, if, if you have a chance of getting like, you know, you, you put two BTC or three BTC and, you know, your 45K right now, right, in terms of today's mm -hmm. value gets stuck, right? It's locked up. You can't get it out for some reason. I don't you know, mm -hmm. you're going to, you're, what, what are you going to like, you're making money on transactions, your Bitcoin's just stuck versus if you wrap it and throw it on some farming protocol for 5%, it just seems much more, mm -hmm. the ROI is better, right? For the risk involved. Yeah, I think I think you're right, but I also think that like we shouldn't get too far away from the impetus of why the Lightning Network is is there to begin with, right? I and, think it's there to serve transactions between merchants and um, whoever their clientele are, right? But arguably, like that hasn't been developed well enough. It seems like un until I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's yes, you're not wrong. That's part of it, but it was also for like. Small transactions, no one gives a shit about, right? Yeah, but that like which transactions like so like let's 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 hammer this out. So like if you wanted to buy a cup of coffee from Starbucks or I don't know four dollars, four dollars. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you'd have to open up a channel with say like a hundred bucks between you and Starbucks. But arguably, Starbucks doesn't even have Lightning Network capabilities. So like it's kind of moot. Like you want to pay for your coffee with lightning, but they don't even accept lightning. Yeah. So like, yeah, I mean, exactly. That's, that's the whole point. I think that's what people are trying to like. I think, the I, think I think the hope is that the value of Bitcoin becomes so not enormous, but so societally ingrained that it's purchasing power just, go gross because if if you if starbucks is already on the lightning network and you as a person are already on the lightning network then that transaction is very easy and very smooth right it's super smooth but there's a certain like i don't know there's there's a certain amount of people and size that you need for the network to the lightning network to be excuse me for that future to make any sense because one, yeah, Satoshi's would have to be worth Satoshi's would have to be worth a little over a dollar for that to really make sense. For someone like Starbucks to stake that much Bitcoin on the Lightning Network, right? For them to always be attached to the Lightning Network and that Bitcoin not do anything. I don't think Starbucks would do that. I don't think Starbucks would buy Bitcoin just to fund a, a like a liquidity channel on Lightning. That's but not, that's, that's you don't think that now, but if you're going to be involved on, a, on an internet of money and the Lightning Network is a part of that, then you're going to need to you're going to need to have Bitcoin just to have it be no different than having a modem. I've, I've got to have a modem in my Starbucks in order to get the internet. So I got to have some Bitcoin. I have a Lightning node running in the Starbucks in order to have these Lightning fast transactions. Right? No, they the, could the run a Lightning node and they could pay somebody for the liquidity to be transferred to their channel when clients want to open up. Um, a transaction to them why do that that just seems like the more cost ineffective thing to do 
because the rates might be cheaper than using a payment processor than the 3% or what 5% that they actually charge. Payment processors. Right. So, so the whole, the whole problem, like, like one of the problems in lightning from what I understand is, um, having enough liquidity and also having the shortest path, like assessing where the shortest path is in terms of channels open between you and your intended uh, recipient of the Bitcoin. So like you and I don't have to have a channel open. Right. We don't have to have a channel open between us. There may be intermediaries between us that we can use their open channels already so that I can send you Bitcoin. Yes. So that's that's what I'm saying. There's nothing that like automatically finds the the path the the path of least resistance. Oh, they don't have a routing protocol. They don't have a routing. I thought that was the whole reason for it. They they from what I understand, they don't have something that dynamically routes you to the most cost efficient path. And so you actually end up having like they have a they have like a website that actually has some some big lightning channels that you can actually, I guess, connect to. Uh, um, but none of it is like automatic. Oh, it's okay. all so that, that's a big piece you that's missing your own right now. channel, your own liquidity. You and, and uh, until you read that headline, right? So now they have like a marketplace for purchasing liquidity, right? Is, mm-hmm. is what they're saying. So originally it was like manual liquid, manual liquidity was a problem. Also manual routing efficiency of routing was like a problem. So it's like they they have to solve these problems before you even get Starbucks a, a chance to even come be a part of it. And arguably Starbucks will not hold Bitcoin. I mean they may, but as a as a as a dip their toe in the water proof of concept, they may just purchase liquidity and pay somebody say, you know, 1%. You know, they'll they'll there will be an intermediary that kind of steps in with big bags to provide channel liquidity mm-hmm. at a cost for these companies that don't necessarily have the infrastructure to store Bitcoin and know how, but they, they, somebody can come in, right. And they probably will come in and be that, that middleman. Probably going to be Visa. Visa is not going to get out of the payments game. I'll tell you that much. Like Visa's Visa, MasterCard and Amex, they've probably been looking at blockchain and crypto so fucking intense the last like five years that it's that they're just ready they're ready. Like as soon as as soon as they see it starting to become popular, they're gonna be like, "Guess what? Visa can do now. Allow you to accept Bitcoin, and you don't have to worry about all that crazy nerdy stuff. We got you covered for a small fee of four and a half percent. Like that, they're just gonna slide in there, all yeah. smooth, like smoother than Teflon Don, and they're gonna hide everyone from all this shit that we're talking about. But like, I think that. All of the dreams of grandeur that Bitcoin and crypto have is like the it all, huh? They're gonna get reduced hard. Yeah, they don't get reduced. They're just gonna be bought, put in a nice bottle. They're gonna be called high concentrate, and they're just gonna be something to make a middleman money. Like the they, I think Bitcoin and crypto, the whole community, just just so naively underestimated. The power of like money and like where people are positioned in life. And like if I used to be I, I did used to be really green and I would be like, 
oh yeah, Bitcoin's gonna overtake Visa someday. No, it's fucking not. Like Visa's pockets are so deep. They're in the they're in the ears of they're within earshot of so many legislators around the whole planet. They're not fucking overtaking Visa. It's not happening. What's up, hero? Welcome to the show. It's not gonna happen. Like that that's where the Bitcoin and crypto community is naive. The only thing they can hope to do is the Elon Musk route, where Elon Musk like basically said it and he was like, Hey, I know I can't take these automobile uh, companies head on. I'm going to have to make something that is so good. They're going to join me. Like, that's what he basically said with Tesla. He's like, I'm going to make a product that's so undeniably unfuckwithable that consumers and the auto companies are going to join me in my journey. And that's what crypto has to do. And crypto is not going to be able to do that because it is not a centralized entity. It is decentral and it's a bunch of tribes trying to create shit in these little pockets and these little vacuums. And they never get any interactivity with the rest of the, the tribes in the pockets. So all you just have is this chaotic dangle of shit. And that's I think we're all waiting for everything to be off obfuscated away, like all the complexity. We're waiting for them to tuck away all the wires and be like, here's the iPad or here's the Tesla. Here's the final product, basically, that is super easy to use. It looks really sophisticated, complicated, but it's like it's very simple in its function. And the layperson can understand and use it really easily. I think I think we're just waiting for that, which arguably Coinbase has sucked up a lot of people, right? Yeah, yeah. Coinbase is Coinbase is getting dangerous, though. They need to relax a little bit. They need to pump their brakes, adding all these shit coins. They need to. They need to take all this shit coins. They need to take all these billions of dollars that they make every month and yeah. and try to make some upgrades or try to do some actual tentative good to the network. Like they need to do something. Like something needs to be done. They they you know like like that like the uh, airline industry. Like they make all this money off of you paying nine dollars for a bag of popcorn that's like a little Ziploc baggie. But they do eventually take that money and put that into research and development on the planes. Research and development in the actual airport. Research. There's lots of shit that's done, like that has to that has to be done. Like I'm pretty sure that the airline industry did a little bit of uh, investment in the R and D for like wireless signals routing. Like like they they put that money into something, and that's what Coinbase needs to do and just stop adding shit coins that Brian Armstrong has bags of. He just looks every month. He looks in his wallet. He's like, "What the fuck is ZWD coin?" I'm just waiting uh-huh. for like for like Superman to show up, he and, asks, then, and yeah. then he's gonna be like, "Yes, I I was Lex Luthor this whole entire time." There's oh. like we get to watch like Superman, Lex Luthor duke it out in real life. He's definitely Armstrong. Lex Luthor. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like assistant, and the assistant his his name is probably Bobby, and Bobby comes in and Bobby's like, "Yes, Mr. Armstrong, sir." And he's like, "Hey, how did I get five hundred thousand ZWD token?" He's like, "Um, I don't know, but it's there." He's like, "All right, put it on Coinbase, put it on there next week, make it a big deal." Papa needs to go to the islands this week. All right, <laughs> Papa needs some brand new gators. Needs some brand new gators. Anyways, um, where do we get to? We were talking about lightning pools and why you think they suck ass. I mean, they I do. Think it. Right Whatever, now, bro. Who won? Were... Who sucks ass? Firstly, that 
that phrase in itself needs examination. Um, so just going to leave that there. Two, why does it suck ass when it's literally trying to do and be the things that we wanted it to do and be? Because it's not being, it's like, it's like you want the child to grow up to be the adult, but it's a child. That's what lightning is right now. Lightning is the child. It's like, please grow up faster. Because you can't really. I guess I got that analogy, but you can't. No one wants their kid to grow up fast. No one's like, please grow up faster. Okay. In terms of like, uh, let's think about it in terms of just human capital. They're useless when they're a toddler. (laughs) We we want. (laughs) That's true. From a utilitarian aspect, you need them to be fully functioning, you know. 18 year olds so that they can work <laughs> what are you a farmer now you're like i need some hands from a ranch all right i can't do nothing with you you little meat bag i mean that's I, what lightning is right i'm just waiting for it to be useful um things take arguably time. is useful arguably okay uh-huh why do people keep calling me while I'm trying to record? Do they don't know I'm fucking Showtime? Do they don't know that this is Showtime D right now? What the fuck? I'm on air. Shit. Um. So Hero just types, fuck 2020. So what happened look, look now? At the, look at the article above that. Oh, shit. What did I miss? Goddamn. What happened? No! We lost the national treasure. Alex Trebek. Man, I knew he was going to die. Damn, Yagi, why did he put bummers for 400? That is such a shitty thing to... to... Well, it's not. It's not. It's actually really respectful. Oh, man. 2020 just keeps on going, doesn't it? Well, Alex Trebek has now left us, so I don't know who's going to take over Jeopardy, but it better not fucking be Steve Harvey. (laughs) Wait, what? Steve Harvey just gets on my nerves now, man. He was really funny <laughs> in like the late 90s, but now it's just like I can't take it anymore, bro. Your mustache looks like a caterpillar. You're not very funny. All you do is make weird faces and misappropriately quote Bible scripture. Like, go away, Harvey. You're tall, you're wide. Like, we <laughs> we get it, Mr. Harvey. We get it. Wait, um, what about what about Bill Nye? Oh, he's he's a uh he's losing his touch. He's getting old, he's getting frustrated, you can see it in his eyes, he's cursing and shit. You know, he's he needs to get back to the kids, he needs to get back to like being that guy because one, he needs to stop treating adults like they're kids. And he needs to go back to teaching science to kids, right? Wait, like, no it, that, wait, Alicia, is, are you saying like Bill Nye for Jeopardy? Oh, oh shit, I, I, I missed that part. Remember. I'm actually okay with that. Bill Nye for Jeopardy? <laughs> yeah. That was, that's actually go. a pretty good idea. What about Jim Carrey for Jeopardy? No, I'm kidding. Oh, no, that terrible. would be insane. That would, that would be, be insane. Yeah, no. What if Drew Carey works a double shift in the studio and he does The Price is Right <laughs> and Jeopardy? Oh, my God. Well, I don't know. His burn rate would be very accelerated. Dude, I've seen so much Price is Right in my life because uh, my grandma loves it. And when I was a kid, 
she just would not let us watch anything but the prices, right? So I like have a very, very intimate knowledge of California's prices on groceries and things. And uh-huh. it's just something that <laughs> it's something that I tout. It's something that I know. When I see a, like a thing of toothpaste in my grocery store, I'm like, oh, it's probably like five thirty six. It's probably like five dollars and thirty six cents over in Cali right now. Damn. Like, <laughs> Damn. They have expensive prices on toothpaste. I'm forever looking at numbers and trying to jumble them into what the cost of a car would be. Why? Because I got so much prices right in me, bro. <laughs> I've actually practiced my wheel, my wheel turning. <laughs> I got like, you got to put your abs into it a little bit. You got to uh-huh. get it. In, and then you step back and then Drew Carey is going to be like, oh, this could be a winner. And you're like, shut the fuck up, Drew. Let it go. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And then I know they got a mechanism in that wheel. I know that they do. That just like slows it down or speeds it up. You know what I mean? Like it's I've thought that my whole life. Like, you know how easy it is to cheat that shit. They put a little bit yeah. of just put a little break in there, a little braking system in there. Cause sometimes people get so close and it's like boop, boop, and they're like, oh fuck you, Drew. Damn. I spun that as hard as I could. Anyways, <laughs> um So today today's interview. <laughs> we uh we we interviewed a, a brilliant guy from Ample Forth. Um. Yeah, Mr. this was Col- good. Yes, it was actually. Uh, and this guy actually, the Ample token, um, is responsible for DeFi as we know it. I didn't know I was interviewing the Godfather of DeFi, the architect. Like, yeah. yeah, shout out to Evan. Whoa, thank thanks for that interview. It was good. Woo! You know what I noticed about um, like super intelligent people, and this is a, this that's a very soft compliment to you, Mister Quo, is that. Whenever you ask them a question, like you could actually see them thinking, like you could see it happening. Like that's what I was noticing in the interview. I was like, I could see this man thinking right now. Like usually, not usually, but back when I was doing all those uh, announcements for those shitty companies that were trying to, you know, bounce on the 2017 wave. It was so like cookie cutter CEO responses. Like you'd ask somebody a question and he's like, yes, I studied for that one. And they just immediately start like rattling off an answer. And it's just like, did you practice that in front of the mirror, bro? Because you one, you barely answered my question. And two, um, it seemed really packaged. Um, but this was not the case with Mr. Evan. Um, you know, it's it's actually kind of cool he built he built this uh, it uh dynamic supply right and that what they're trying to do is no yeah. no no well yeah is that the number in your your wallet goes up but not in relation to the dollar or bitcoin it goes up in relation to the supply of ample that's out there right so one day you'll have 10 ample in your wallet the next day you wake up and you have 15 or 25 ample in your wallet all depending upon a dynamic supply all based upon very rigid um, economic theories uh, from, I think he said, what, the late 50s to the early 70s? Is that what he said? Yeah, like the gist of it is like, what is it? It it, it, um, dynamically adjusts based on the CPI of the 2019 dollar. There you go. So um, you said a lot more eloquently than I did. You were you were you were paying attention. Yeah, I was listening uh, to him. <laughs> I'm always 70% listening, 30% not. Like, I don't know if you know that about me. But, um, 
here it is. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to another one of the Bitcoin podcasts interviews. Um, this one is it's going to be nice. It's going to be nice because we're joined by Evan. Cool. Welcome. Thanks, I hope I Kevin. said that right. Be here. Did yeah, I say you that actually right? got it right. You totally got it right. It's like quo, like status quo or quid pro quo. But a lot of people don't get it right on the first shot. So I'm, I'm excited that you did. Ooh, quid pro quo. Too soon to use that phrasing. It's still, <laughs> yeah. still in my heart. Um, so Evan, man, first of all, let's let's try and get to know you a little more. We always try to get to know our guests, you know, like where where'd you come from? How you know, what's your background? How'd that background intersect with crypto or you know, or Bitcoin or Ether or however you've, you know, fallen into the space. So we'll start there. Who is Evan Quo? Good question. Yeah, so my background, I'm kind of Californian, born and raised, originally in the Bay Area. Um, went to school at UC Berkeley to study uh, mechanical engineering and then got increasingly more into computer science um, through kind of a robotics research program that I was part of there. Um, then kind of after graduation, went to a series of kind of software startups and have, have been working on things of that nature ever since. Um, I first heard about Bitcoin pretty early on from a friend of mine who was um, a pretty serious libertarian. I think he shared the white paper with me. I read it and I remember having this thought, which was, well, this is interesting, but this system is very, very unscalable. Like why, why would anybody design a system that way? And, and the second thought that I had was nobody's going to understand this. Like, <laughs> you know, uh, for, for, for this to become adopted and used as a money, um, is just asking me to stretch my imagination a little bit too far. It was too much, too much for me to like really geek out about at the time. But I, I, I definitely made a mental note and it kept on like spinning in the back of my mind over the years, really. Um, you know, I eventually came to realize that it was designed in such an unscalable way because it was designed to counteract a software monopoly, right? Uh, it made great concessions architecturally um, to do that, to achieve that. And the second thing that stood out over time in my mind was it had succeeded in creating digital scarcity, right? In, in a universe where, I mean, making anything scarce in a digital world is already a big achievement, right? I mean, you take a photo, submit it to Instagram, it's there forever, right? Um, not scarce, no scarcity, everything can be copied. Um, but those were the two things. And Around the time of Ethereum's launch and the year or so after that, I started to get a little bit more interested in blockchain technology because, you know, coming from the perspective of an engineer, um, that sort of platform is almost an invitation to build something. It's like, wow, now you can kind of, you know, execute these smart contracts. It's almost turning complete. Um, what couldn't you build with such a thing? And I teamed up with uh, my now co-founder, Brandon Isles, who is you know, a pretty serious engineer. He's a Google search engineer um, and was working on maps at Uber. And we were trying to figure out what the, what the appropriate application of this technology might be. And, you know, everything that everyone is talking about didn't quite make sense. You know, it's like, 
you know, why would you need um, a distributed ledger to recreate uh, Amazon S3? Like say you're doing file storage, right? Why would you need it for any of these utilities like for a web browser to solve these kind of advertising problems? It never really made sense. And it, it kind of stood out in our minds that the, the, the most obvious, the most salient application of blockchain technology was the design of new monies, right? Uh, and, and so from there, we said, okay, Bitcoin has succeeded in creating this kind of digital gold. Um, now what? what? What's next? Like, what? what's wrong with gold? Is there anything wrong with gold? Um, and we started asking these questions, and eventually we found our way over to some folks at the Hoover Institute at Stanford, which is a political and economic think tank. And some of the folks there have been thinking about money for decades. I mean, it's, uh, it's generational knowledge. Uh, of sorts mm. and they know exactly what's wrong with gold <laughs> they don't think there's a whole lot wrong with it um except for when you start to use it as the building block for a new finance or for a financial infrastructure right so gold in of itself like other precious metals can be used as kind of a check against inflation like many other assets it can be used as a check against boom bust cycles um so the kind of people tend to retreat into because it's not as connected to other parts of the economy but um, you run into problems with it when you start to build banking systems on top of it, like um, under the gold standard or under Bretton Woods, where, um, you know, dollars were redeemable for gold by central banks and foreign governments. You run into its fixed supply policy, essentially, or the nature of its supply makes it um, vulnerable to sudden economic shocks. Um, and, and the same would be the case for Bitcoin. So we kind of imagined say it's 1970, you're under the Bretton Woods system, everybody's hoarding gold because, you know, the dollar is a global reserve currency. There's a great deal of demand for it. We promised uh, as a system that we were going to back these dollars by gold. We couldn't get enough gold to back the growing demand for dollars, which caused the price of gold to skyrocket, which caused people to hold and hoard their gold because they believed it was going to be worth more and more and put the system on at risk of a deflationary spiral. That's why Nixon canceled redeemability under Bretton Woods in 1971. And we imagined, well, what if instead of gold, we use Bitcoin, right? What, what if, you know, rather than this kind of hard rock that we have to mine from the earth, instead we had this digitally scarce new generation precious metal, would we have been in any better off? And, you know, the, the clear answer from and the, the experts have said, no, I mean, we've faced the same dilemma. Um, if the same system swapping gold for Bitcoin, you know, we, we would have run into the same problem. So we started to wonder like, well, what sort of asset would you need as a base money? Mm -hmm. That could have been a viable swap for gold under Bretton Woods. Um, and that's how we came up with Ample. So um, Ample is a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, except for the number of units in your wallet um, increases and decreases daily based on demand, based on price exchange rate. Hmm. I got a question for you. When you originally looked at Bitcoin, you said, oh, you know, this is crazy difficult for someone to understand. Mm -hmm. um, what was it? Which part of it was the crazy difficult part for someone to understand? Like what jumped out as you was like, oh, yeah, that's difficult. No one's ever going to get that. It wasn't no one's ever going to get that so much as like, yeah, I didn't get it because I was like, well, didn't we try this fixed supply thing with gold? I didn't quite know what was wrong with fixed supply, but I knew that we moved on from that into this fiat money system, right? And so it seemed like a step backwards on that level. 
but I, it's not that I didn't, I didn't understand why it was designed intuitively in such an unscalable way. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause it's well, man, if you want this to compete with Visa or become, you know, a new cash or something like that, it would, it would need much more throughput. Um, and then lastly, I didn't believe out the gate that it would become nearly as liquid as it has become now. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, just because it was like, okay, everybody who will one day use this currency has to begin by reading this paper. Right. And then they have to kind of collectively agree that this has some sort of value. And it was just so early at that time. There was no exchange actually at the time when I was reading this paper to buy Bitcoin on. Um, there was no, the only thing you could do was mine it. And um, yeah, it was so far away from what it is today. Um, but yeah, I, I still today, to this day, think it's kind of miraculous that Bitcoin was able to bootstrap the, the liquidity and exchange value that it has without any prior connection to a traditional asset. Um, but now, yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's awesome. I, um, sorry, Jesse, were you going to say something? No, I'm just kind of, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of how, how I would ask the question. I have a question about Ampleforth specifically, but I'll, I'll let you guys keep talking and I'll, I'll think about how I want to word it. Yeah. I was, um, as you, well, you're probably not privy to it, um, but I have this argument a lot of the times with our other co-hosts who couldn't make it and Jesse as to that no one's going to understand it, but it's irrelevant if people understand it or not. And like the only reason I pose that argument is because like if I were to walk to anybody, I, th- I bet I could walk to a thousand people that use dollars right now and set a dollar bill in front of them and say, explain to me the inner workings of this dollar, where it was printed, how it's printed, how do we know when to print it, what these numbers at the top right mean, these numbers at the bottom left and the center, the bottom right. Why does the border need to be this thick around the edge? Like, explain it to me. They'd be like, I don't give a shit, man. Just here's the chips. Give me the dollar. Like, that's, exactly. what, <laughs> that's what they would say. Exactly. So that's, yeah. That's why I always kind of push back on that. Because people don't necessarily need to understand technologies to use them. And that's with any technology. I do believe money's a technology. But even with lights yeah, like it, now, it, go ahead. Go ahead. No, it certainly is. And you're absolutely right. It's like you don't need to understand how the sausage is made to know, you know, that you can consume it and it tastes, tastes good delicious. and fills you up and it gives you <laughs> energy. But here's something interesting with respect to like Bitcoin and, and the dollar actually more importantly is like, um, the transition from a gold-backed dollar to a pure fiat money is not something that happened um, on the first try, right? Mm-hmm. And it, 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 that was the first time that so that had happened. So there's this concept called the labor theory of, of value, which is more Marxian. This idea that you need to encode a certain amount of labor time into something in order for it to carry value. Um, and you know, um, with, with gold, right, there is about a certain amount of work that you need to do to mine it, right? Uh, there's this utility value to it. And, but with fiat, not so much, right? Uh, it's ju- it takes just about as much time to, to print like a $1 bill as, as it does to print a 10 or $1,000 bill. Um, and, you know, sometime around the Industrial Revolution, it became possible to print fiat money in such a way that it was cheap to print, but expensive to counterfeit. Uh, but even following that for a time, these paper monies um, existed 
together with existing kind of commodity monies, which had this kind of, um, you know, utility and value to it. Um, and it was only at the time of Bretton Woods where that transition was completely made or like, but for a time they both had to exist. Like there was this paper that you believed was valuable because it was redeemable for gold, which you knew was scarce and difficult to obtain because it takes time in order to unearth it. Right. When we moved from that system to a pure fiat money system, that was kind of a big deal. Um, and, and what they call this phenomenon over time is Mises regression theorem, where like an asset that carries value was previously connected to something else that carries value that's previously connected to essentially time that, that's valuable. And so, yeah, that Bitcoin is almost the first example of an asset that has bootstrapped this nominal exchange value in a meaningful way without any prior connection to an asset that previously had value. And so it is kind of a miracle in that way. It's pretty dope. I like it a Bitcoin. I'm not going to lie. It's not like I have a whole show named after it or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. let's, let's, let's but, seg, let's segue. Go ahead, go ahead. No, but with ample, what we realized was like, okay, you can only do, you can, it's cool. It's a digital gold, but you can only take the gold so far, right? Like it can't be used. The, there's nothing wrong with gold. It can be extremely valuable. But it's not a great building block. Like with Bitcoin, I, you wouldn't want to get into a contract with somebody that's denominated in Bitcoin. Like, say we were saying something like, okay, if the Dodgers win the World Series, I'll pay you 10 Bitcoin. You you and I enter that bet, right? Um, mm -hmm. You're kind of happy with that, but you sell the option of that contract to someone else. And and someone takes the option of that contract, it repackages it with a bunch of other contracts and sells it to someone else, right? You know, the time marches on and all of a sudden, you know, the Dodgers are in the World Series and I'm on the hook to pay you, like, let's just say $10,000 when I thought I was going to be on the hook to pay you $1,000 because the price of Bitcoin has changed a little. I default on that contract. Um, then the person who you sold that option to kind of that contract kind of defaults and there's this cascading effect to it. So it's just not very good for contract denomination in that way as a, as a building block. Uh, and so with Ample, because um, the manner in which it increases or decreases its supply is based on this price target. What you ultimately know is that one ample is roughly worth a dollar, a 2019 CPI adjusted dollar. That's the purchasing power of a single ample. It will always cyclically revolve around that. But the number of ample that you own can increase or decrease, right? So just like Bitcoin is a volatile asset, you can speculate on it, you can, you can buy low, you can sell high. It's more that that volatility translates from price to count, right? Um, and as a result, it can be used for contract denomination. And as a result, it can withstand kind of these sudden shocks and demand that would have kind of uh, destabilized a Bretton Woods-like system, um, but wouldn't destabilize a system that's not denominated in ample in that way. So that's how we got there. It's more like, how do we expand the function of gold just a tiny bit? So it can do a little more work as opposed to how do we take the central banking system as we know it today and put it on the blockchain, which is kind of the approach that like a maker DAO would take. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of that approach so far. It's fun. Um, but it's, it's kind of iffy. So it's complicated um, and it can break is the thing, right? It'll always run into a situation where it can potentially break. Absolutely. I mean, even, you know, even in today's the central bank can break too, but I think exactly. right now there's exorbitant effort being used 
to make sure it doesn't break. So that's right. Um, so I want to go back to something you mentioned about amples, like the, the amount that you can have goes up and goes down. And in a world where everyone's using NOS, NOS is my own phrase though, Jesse, so you can't steal it. It just means numbers on a screen because that's how everyone's, that's how everyone's raised these days. Like one, I've written one check in my life, one, and I'm 35. Um, I've, I use cash maybe three, four times a year. Like, I mean, it's like very rare that I have cash in my wallet. So I'm already indoctrinated into the NOS system. And that is, I don't really give a shit. What's the numbers on the screen say? And I have one golden rule. They need to go up over a certain period of time. And so yep. you have people like myself, millions of people, well, billions of people like myself that are now indoctrinated into the NOS system wouldn't think that they would lose kind of some um, favor with Ampleforth if their numbers on the screen go down without like them knowing why. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the number on the screen phenomenon, well, I mean, look, the balance of your wallet can go up and down based on yeah. demand, right? So the value of the Amples in my wallet might be worth $1,000 a day. $1,100 tomorrow, $900 like the day after that. Um, that's the same with Bitcoin too, right? I, I might just hold like a 10th of a Bitcoin and, and the value of my balance can increase or decrease just based on demand. That much is true. I think what is totally new um, is this idea that the number of units in your wallet can increase or decrease without any transaction between peers. Normally like, hey, look, I got one Bitcoin in order for me to get to somebody's got to send me a, a, another Bitcoin. Yeah. Right. It's not going to become, it's not going to multiply like a crop of wheat in my backyard or decay like a crop of wheat in a bad weather season in my backyard automatically. But that's exactly what Ample does. It's a kind of like a commodity money. Right. And we see this kind of, you know, in traditional commodities, right. Like with wheat where the, the quantity can increase and decrease, um, except for instead of that increase or decrease happening as a function of weather patterns, it, has a it happens as a function of demand. And then there's this other important thing about Amples is it's non-dilutive. Whatever percent of the network you own, you'll forever own, unless you kind of buy or sell more Ample. Like, so if you own 1% of the Ample network, when the whole market cap is worth like hundred dollars, you'll have like a, you'll have paid a dollar, you have 1% of the network. And then the market cap grows to like, let's say a thousand, you'll still have 1%. You'll just have 10 ample instead of one ample. You'll have 10 out of a thousand instead of one out of a hundred. So no matter what your, your percent ownership is non-dilutive. Um, that's also kind of interesting too. Um, I think the reason why the U S dollar kind of is more static from the perspective of, of a you know an average consumer in America is because they don't they don't see the floating exchange rates they don't see forex right they go to their yeah. Walmart they pay they their five dollars gets them just as far you know the next day you know a few weeks later even even maybe a few months um, yeah. there's not a lot of volatility that they see but I guess when you digitize which is what I guess Ample kind of does it's kind of like correct me if I'm wrong because I, I really, I think, I think we, we differ. I think your, your knowledge of like the financial mechanisms in which you're trying to kind of like 
put control over, like exert control, like ample, I, I, I may just not understand them. So I guess I'm, I'm kind of reduction, uh, like just reducing my, my understanding of ample so that you're kind of like digitizing the volatility of, of like, uh, what would be blockchain's version of the dollar that you're kind of basing ample based on the 2019 value of the dollar, but like, yeah, yeah. There's a couple of things that you mentioned there. So like, yeah, it's like you said, when, when folks have five bucks and they go to Walmart, they can kind of exchange the same, they can buy the same burger today as they could tomorrow, even if the Forex exchange rates fluctuating a little. Right. I think that's pretty much, there's a difference between a real exchange rate, which is like, how many burgers can I get for this piece of paper? And a nominal exchange rate, which is like, you know, what, how, do, how, how is this being exchanged in a secondary market? And, and when you have a real exchange rate, what you end up with is this phenomena called like price and wage stickiness. Um, and, and this is a big reason for why, um, you know, fiat money and central bank money works the way it does today. Uh, when you have a sovereign monopoly, like the U.S. government, you can kind of force people to, to denominate things in dollars and you, you can certainly force them to pay their taxes in dollars right and if they're denominating wages goods paying taxes in this money then there's this natural stickiness to it which absorbs a lot of supply change volatility so when the fed prints a bunch of money we don't immediately see that result in price inflation at walmart right it's because there's this concept of nominal rigidity where that real exchange rate actually starts to stabilize the money um, in a bi-directional way but how does so that, in the how case, does Ample do that without like, you know, cause like you're saying government kind of sets at, the price yeah. of things. Ample doesn't do that. Well, so Ample doesn't have a real exchange rate. Largely crypto doesn't because folks aren't denominating good services right. wages in cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, right? I don't want to like price my car for sale in Bitcoin because like I might really regret that. <laughs> you know, I might say, you know, I might think I'm getting a certain amount for it and later realize, holy cow, you know, I shouldn't have done that, right? Um, so you don't see any of that real exchange rate price stickiness um, kicking in. In the case of Ample, the the way it maintains that notion of uh, that price target is we actually just have an oracle, and so we we an oracle basically is just a way to receive information from the outside world, and and this oracle just gets a feed from the Bureau of Economic Analysis that tells you what the, the CPI adjusted 2019 dollars worth. It gives you a feed of CPI. So they have a bunch of economists um, that compute like, you know, using the idea of a basket, right? Like, you know, how much your money is worth, right? This is how they measure inflation. Um, and so it, it, you could just think of it as a- So you're trying to like leverage the stickiness adjusted. that is inherent to the dollar to ample. Yeah, I mean, when you have this kind of CPI-adjusted dollar, you're kind of looking for a true purchasing power, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what is this dollar worth today, right? If a, if a dollar buys you a can of Coke today, but prices continue to inflate for like 20 years, it might cost you like $2 to buy a can of Coke in 20 years or something like that, right? right. What we mean when we say $1 is like what $1 would have bought you in 2019, and therefore it's kind of a non-inflating target, Right. And that's, so, that's forever. Right. So you guys won't adjust year to year. Like you won't use the 2020 CPI of the dollar. Mm -hmm. okay. No. Yeah. It doesn't. And that's why the exchange rate, the, the price target for the ample is no longer like $1. It's kind of like, you know, 1.05 
you know, it's like, it's because inflation has already occurred. The value of one ample is actually more than one $2020. So do you see, do you see people trying to leverage ample's stability that you've created to kind of build, I guess, derivative markets? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So that's exactly what I mean by building blocks. So because all, all of our academic advisors and stuff, they've been thinking about money as a building block for a long time. They've kind of encoded all these thoughts into into their recommended designs and so on and so forth. But really, when I see what's going on in crypto today, I think of cryptocurrencies like Ample and Bitcoin as like a new generation of precious metals, digital precious metals. And I think of DeFi as a new generation of rudimentary banks that are being created to facilitate the exchange of these precious metals or the lending and borrowing of these uh, precious metals. So just basic banks. And so what you see going on with these basic banks like compound is folks can kind of deposit a certain amount of collateral and borrow against it. And, and what happens right now is most of the borrowing people do that against the stable coin. You always want to borrow against a stable coin denomination because that you, then you know what your debt obligation is. You know, like, okay, if I borrowed 50 bucks, I'm going to pay $50 back. It's not going to suddenly become $500, you know, um, overnight and, and kind of ruin. I know what my debt obligation is. Um, so that a lot of the borrow demand kind of occurs only with like things like Tether or USDC, which are collateralized dollars. They're basically US dollars. Right? We don't see a lot of debt denomination in cryptocurrencies. And, and we know this to be a kind of a, a key piece um, that unlocks a lot of financial innovation. So for a sophisticated system to emerge that's not directly connected to a central currency or traditional asset or sovereign government, you would need a decentralized cryptocurrency that could be used for contract denomination as well. And that's precisely what you could do with Ample. So in, in a system like Compound, let's just say I deposit like 50 Ample and you borrow 25, right? The 25 Ample that I've deposited that has not yet been borrowed it still fluctuates as a function of supply changes. It might multiply or shrink based on demand. But the 25 that you're borrowing against, your debt obligation is 25 ample now, 10 years now, 100 years, not the discounted future value of 25 ample subject to all of its supply increases and decreases over time. It's just 25 ample. So you wouldn't like shoot yourself for kind of obligating yourself to pay 25 ample back in the future. Even if ample's market cap grew a thousand fold, you wouldn't suddenly have to pay $25,000. So if you and I had to nominate that contract and say ETH and ETH grew a thousand fold, you might be like, oh my God, I better kind of close out my position. Otherwise I'm not going to be able to end that contract. I'll get auto liquidated. So it's very useful for that use case right there. Another thing that's really interesting about Ample is like, because it has this novel supply policy where the supply increases and decreases go directly to users, that actually affects the movement pattern of the coin in the marketplace. So kind of describe this qualitatively, but we actually drew this out in our in our research thesis that it would have this cyclical movement around the target, right? And that the market cap would move in a more step function like manner. And because traders couldn't simply apply a normal coin strategy to Ample, you can't use price as a proxy for gains and losses. Like I might've bought Ample at a dollar. It might've grown and multiplied a thousand fold. I might've then sold Ample where price is still a dot a dollar and I would have gained Right. Normally, you just feel like if I bought it at a price and I sold it at a higher price, I gain. If I bought it at a price, I sold it at the same price. I remain the same. If I bought it at a price, and I sold it at a lower price than I lost. That's not the case with Ample. And so traders have to look at 
the product of price and supply or market cap instead as a proxy for gains and losses. And as a result of that, it could create this movement pattern that decouples from Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, which would be useful for um, diversification too. So we were looking at it from two angles, like, okay, how do we build a building block that could be useful for contract denomination? And two, like, oh, could this also be useful for diversification? Because a lot of these assets are really hyper-correlated for, for a number of reasons. Two questions. So one is, if you had to kind of poke holes in and see kind of more what, what the cons could potentially be for Ample long-term, uh, what yeah. would they be? So that's first question. And then second question is, not a lot of people consider this, but Bitcoin at some point when all the coins are minted or close to all of them, right? We're going to go into um, a an inflationary mechanism that will kick in, right? That we really haven't talked. We don't. Nobody really talks too much to that. Sorry. Uh, wait. So when Bitcoin hits twenty one million, people generally think it will be viewed as like a deflationary asset, right? Because folks will just like lose some some Bitcoin, and like you know, like mm-hmm. burn their keys and, and lose uh, over time. Kind of like. People just do kind of lose okay. track of it. Huh. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think right now it's on an inflation schedule and then right. it eventually stops. Yeah. Uh, and, and then people think it, it's more of a deflationary asset, you know, or a fixed supply, mild deflationary oh, yeah, asset. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So with Bitcoin, yeah. So is, I think is Ample kind of like play out like gold? Them? No, Ample's not really shortcutting anything. You know, it's a long game. It's like Bitcoin in the sense that like for it to stabilize, to become a stable store of value where like the money in your wallet remains relatively stable, it needs to kind of mature through all these life cycles. Oh, but what is shortcutting? I see what you're saying. What is shortcutting is you can start using it as a building block sooner. You don't have to wait till it gets to that incredible right. steady state to start that's using it yeah. to build banks. That's, that's true, except that even when Bitcoin hits its true steady state, it won't stabilize just as gold mm, hasn't. Okay. Right. The reason, yeah. So under Bretton Woods, we weren't using gold to pay people. This is the seventies. We were using dollars. They just happened to be redeemable for gold and the dollars, you know, we, yeah. So, I mean, I thought it, the only reason not, like historically we didn't use gold to, cause I know they use gold post-World War II for reparations. And then they, like, I know us lended France and Germany, a lot of gold in order to help them rebuild. Yeah. But I, yeah. I also think it's the the, um, the the transportation of gold, you know, to different places. I think that's a that's a problem, and just tracking everything. I think that's that's like Bitcoin solved that, arguably, right? Because totally, yeah, totally, yeah. So with with like with gold, um, yeah, it's clunky. It's heavy to carry around. It takes a bunch of space. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. If you think about the TPS of Bitcoin, you're complaining about it. Think about like, okay, how many nuggets of gold can I right. send to Tokyo in a day? Right. <laughs> that's actually, it's actually a lot faster by comparison, but really that those weren't the final problems of gold that we dealt with. We, we reconciled that with, with paper redeemable okay. solutions. Right. And, and that could certainly exist digitally as well. The real problem with it was just, um, just inability to react to sudden shocks in demand, right? And resu- that results in price volatility, which could kind of break contracts or lead to liquidity crises. So with Bitcoin, even at steady state, it won't really stabilize. It, it'll, it'll just become more like a digital gold, which will be fantastic for a number of reasons. Um, but it just won't be that building block for a financial ecosystem that I know is the promise of authors like Safety Namas in his book, The Bitcoin Standard. So 
um, I think most 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 economists view that to be wrong. Um, there's just no reason to believe that that it will stabilize. It will become more stable, but you know, not completely stable. So, mm-hmm. with with Ample, um, the other thing I would say is if you're asking me to kind of poke holes at it and say like, what's wrong with Ample? You know, something something has to give. It can't just be better across the board. Um, well, um, one of the things, and this is just really the opportunity is that we do have this Oracle, right? So we feed in, there is some mechanism, right? That, that sends a price exchange rate to this smart contract. Now the system automatically executes supply changes as a result of that price exchange rate. But that input comes from, you know, a network of trusted parties. So we operate an Oracle, Chainlink operates an Oracle for us. And all it does is tell us the 24 hour volume weighted average price of Ample. Um, and it gets its information from aggregators. Um, but Bitcoin doesn't have that external feedback um, signal coming in. And, and, and so that's a, that's a source of potential centralization that we need to get rid of. Um, and the, the hope is that with decentralized exchanges like Uniswap, you can get a, a price information signal without opening up um, an input to the outside world. So it could just be an on-chain source of, of price. So that's, that's one problem with it. Um, I guess the, the dollar, guess, like right now, you latching onto the dollar with Ample, um, What, what if what That's if the hard. world doesn't value the dollar? Like it doesn't matter if you're latched yeah. on to if you're pegged to the twenty nineteen dollar. It's it's like what happens? Uh, so yeah, that could happen. So one one issue is right now again, the CPI. If the purchasing power of a twenty nineteen dollar is just kind of telling you like, you know, how much of this basket of goods and services could you purchase with one U.S. dollar in twenty nineteen? Um, at some point, somebody had to do that calculation, right? The Bureau of Economic Analysis does that calculation. Um, I guess if they shut down and they can no longer act as a price target, they can't provide update, updated information about what a $2019 would buy you today, right? Um, then we're, we're kind of out of luck with a price target, but we could, the thing about being a purely algorithmic coin is the price target itself is kind of arbitrary too. So as long as that is stable, as long as the reference point that it's targeting is, is stable, it could live on. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, these are specifically the strengths and weaknesses of Ample. We knew exactly what we were getting into. Um, when we, when we introduced this input, cause it's like, how can you take gold to the next level? Well, you'd have to make it somehow, adjust supply and response to demand. Um, how can you, how can you do that? Well, you need to price in, input a price exchange rate, right? And Bitcoin just didn't even have, and there were no cryptocurrency yeah. exchanges. So when yeah. Bitcoin launched, that wouldn't be, that's not even an option, right? right. But it was an option for us because the infrastructure is now there. Um, and the downside is um, there is this Oracle to decentralize. Um, and this price target that is connected to the Bureau of, of Economic Analysis. So I doubt that that will stop functioning anytime soon, but there are kind of interesting research angles on how to find a price target that's stable mm-hmm. without requiring ex- external information. And so that is kind of something that I, I, 
I check in on from time to time. It's interesting because I know before before the Bitfinex hack, right? Because that's really what started tether printing. Because they, mm. I mean, if you, I don't know if you follow the stories. We used to do, uh, D and I used to do like a show on the network that was more headlines. And um, really, there, there were really no stable coins in crypto until that Bitfinex hack. And they had to pay back a lot of the people. I, I mean, I, I'm sure you were following those stories as well. Um, right. And I guess Tether is really just a, uh, a stable coin that's denominated uh, based on a basket of actual fiat, whether that's, you know, Chinese yuan or, um, you know, other, other different strong, uh, strong fiat currencies, us dollar. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was originally meant to be fully redeemable for dollars. Like one tether is redeemable for $1. And so, yeah, that, that was what it was. And now I think it's somewhat fractionally collateralized. Yeah. And you're right with that hack, with that hack, um, I don't think this was all in the up and up. I don't think they made it public what, what was going on until the New York AG kind of investigated it and the transcript came out. Um, but it's clear that it's more fractionally collateralized now, but still far more collateralized than a normal kind of commercial bank, right? Where the reserve ratios are just like 11% or something like that. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking Tether is probably 70, 80% collateralized now. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but yeah, I actually did have a question. Um, sure. So you talked at, at the very beginning of the show, you talked about Bitcoin's birth from like very libertarian ideals. And that's very true. I think Bitcoin got that catalyst into popularity because it was birthed from very pure philosophies. Um, mm -hmm. Is Ample the same way? I see like, um, when I glance at the website, I see a lot of it's built on a lot of economic theories, a lot of things yeah. that are probably co too complex for the end user. But is there an initiative like that? Like, was it birthed from some from ideals from either you or the co-founder or whoever's the core developers on it right now? Like, what? Yeah. What was the reasoning it, for it? Oh yeah, the ideology is way older than us. Right, just like yeah. Bitcoin, uh, kind of comes from the same school of thinking. Um, really, James Buchanan was the first to kind of introduce and kick around the concept of a rules-based monetary policy. This was sometime in the 60s. I think this guy's a Nobel laureate, an economist. And then, of course, Milton Friedman, in his study of commodity reserve currencies, he very kind of conclusively said that the problem with gold is high cost of production, leading to inadequate supply elasticity, right? The virtue of commodity monies as a reserve is they're kind of uh, not vulnerable to political tampering, right? The vice of it is that they're inelastic, high cost of production, inelastic, and they're vulnerable to sudden um, shocks to demand. Um, and then of course, George Selvian at the Takedo Institute in 2015 started to put some of this together as he was investigating the use of uh, Bitcoin for monetary reform, posited the idea of an elastic supply policy, like a, a commodity money like Bitcoin with an automatic perfect elastic, uh, elastic supply policy. And there's even kind of early form conversations where Satoshi Nakamoto is talking about like, yeah, we had to do fixed supply. Um, we, we might have been able to do an elastic supply if, if there were some way to get an exchange rate, <laughs> but there's no exchange rate. And so, yeah, the ideology uh, comes directly from, uh, I mean, just the monetary economics behind commodity reserve currencies uh, and this search for an ideal base money it's been going on for a really long time and lots of folks have thought of things like ample but 
until Ethereum, until we did it, um, it was really unclear how you would execute. How, how would you create? I mean, it would have been impossible. It required Bitcoin and then it required Ethereum and then it required the infrastructure of cryptocurrency exchanges. And so only until recently, that's only recently that you could have actually executed it. So uh, yeah, the idea is to create a, a, a government independent or sovereign independent money that could function as an alternative to traditional finance or at least a check against it. Um, and mm -hmm. and with, with Ample's, like it can't really break, right? So um, it can fall in value and increase in value, but this is just like Bitcoin. It does, Bitcoin doesn't break if it, you know, if the price goes up 50% or goes down 50, it doesn't break, right? Um, same with Ample, um, whereas things like MakerDAO can break, right? Anything that's a debt derived or collateralized currency like Tether, these things can break. Um, and so we wanted to create a commodity money that, that actually can't break by market forces, but could still be used as a building block for a financial ecosystem. And that's how we got to Ample. It's crazy because where you started just like as a side i also am an engineer and i uh i did research in robotics but soft robotics oh wow but so i'm going into medicine it's interesting how you went into blockchain space yeah wait so you you're in the blockchain space now though and you're and you studied robotics you're in the blockchain space now and now you're going into medicine mm, yeah that's interesting yeah i mean for me yeah, I guess what, what happened was I, under, I I looked at it technically. It didn't quite make sense. The answers to why it was designed the way it was designed was actually in a different field in the field of economics. And then I kind of connected with more academic advisors who gave me the uh, crash course, a very kind of brutal crash course in monetary economics. And yeah, since then, I've been extremely fascinated with that. That's interesting. It's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely some some big jumps. I was I was curious about that too, Jesse. I'm glad you pointed it out. I was like, man, you from engineering to like economics? That's a jump. Yeah. Um, it's it's good. I'm glad that you can so easily articulate like the the origins of why you build Ample because there's not a lot of projects that can. Quite honestly, I'm just being honest. If you guys are if you're listening to the show and you're like on a crypto project and you can't figure out the why of that project to find better something better to do with your time. All right, I'm just telling you that right now. I'm telling you that right now. Find something better to do with your time. Um, yeah. I um, damn. I had a really good question, but I I forgot it. Okay, so I'm known to have weird theories. All right, and one of my weirdest theories recently is the Halo theory, uh, meaning that I would have never owned an Xbox if it weren't for Halo. The exclusivity of something awesome. Right. That, that's, yeah. that's powerful. Right. That is like for ether. I think now it's halo moment is that you need ether to get into this DeFi shenanigans or you need ether to build a decentralized application. Cause right now it's the leading um, DAP platform. It might not be the best, but it's at least the leading, um, you know, and for Bitcoin, it was like, you need Bitcoin to make the number go up. I mean, that was, that's, I mean, that's pretty much why <laughs> yeah. everyone gets into Bitcoin. You know, I have people now that are like, oh my God, I should have listened to you in 2014. I'm like, you're damn right. You're damn right. You yeah. should listen to me. But uh, so what's the halo moment for like Ample? Like, is there some sort of exclusivity either from a technology standpoint, like you have to have Ample to do A, B, or C, 
or from yeah. sociological or economic? Like, what's the halo moment? Yeah, I mean, for us, that question was so hard because we had thought so much about the why and the how to design this. And it was just like, what is the meme that's going to get people to kind of believe in this to the point where it carries some amount of value? Because it could be perfectly designed. If, but if nobody needs it, like you said, the killer application is, is a hard requirement there. Um, mm -hmm. But for us, it kind of kicked in, I think, around July. So we launched this um, liquidity mining program called the Geyser uh, because – in our system, there was never a, there's, there's no notion of proof of work. It's just this pie that grows and shrinks proportionally. And we have these assets in this ecosystem fund that needed to be distributed to people eventually, but no real hard plan for how to do that. So then we launched this liquidity mining program where instead of proving work to get access to these, a continuous drip of ecosystem ample, you would prove liquidity. And the way you would prove liquidity would be by depositing Ample and ETH into two sides of a pool on Uniswap, which would return to you this Uniswap share token, which itself is a token. It represents your percent ownership of that liquidity pool. And so what we did was we said, you can take that share token, you can deposit into this geyser. And the more of these share tokens you deposit and for longer, the more of these share tokens that you stake, the more of a kind of continuous drip of Ample you would get from the ecosystem fund and that went kind of crazy so you know we had pretty low hopes for it because decentralized exchanges like uniswap weren't doing a whole lot of volume but we did it and it it went nuts so very quickly you know we went from nobody being able to really exit their position in ample if they buy it because it wasn't very liquid to a bunch of people in depositing into this geyser program and we became the largest pool on uniswap and then Finally, like Uniswap started to do serious volume. So in that 40 days or so, we grew from a $20 million fully diluted market cap to all the way to like a $1.6 billion fully diluted market cap. And the daily volumes that were happening on chain were really getting to the level of competition with centralized exchanges. So I think at some point we were doing almost like $50 million in volume on chain alone per day, which at that time was completely unheard of. And that kicked off this trend of more clones. First of all, Ample has been cloned at least 10 times. So if you've heard of Yam or Based or any of those other things, they're all kind of forks of Ample or clones of Ample. And, uh, and then the liquidity mining program that we kicked off, people started to go crazy with, like SushiSwap in particular put that on crack. And so first you needed Ample to stake it into this geyser. And it was a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that like, as you staked into this geyser, the asset became more liquid, which created more demand for the asset, which caused it to multiply. Then you needed Ample to deposit into things like Yam, to farm Yam. Like we were one of the staking assets there, right? So and you're then the you source of the DeFi shenanigans. We, we, we created the DeFi degen thing inadvertently. We're speaking right? to so the master. <laughs> yeah, not everybody knows this. The architect, but like, that like in the Matrix. Beginning. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't it wasn't that deliberate. It was just like we wanted to kind of have a staking program for releasing ecosystem funds. But it also became a cultural phenomenon because we have this thing called a rebase, which happens every day at the same exact moment. There the and it got out a little bit on 4chan. Our telegram community went nuts where like every day at 7 p.m. Pacific, people would sit there and like it would be a, a fireworks show of memes counting down to the moment the rebase occurred because they would get more coins and that was so magical for them at the time and 
I got made fun of, you know, it was kind of humiliating. I mean, it was uh, a <laughs> lot of, it was funny, but you know, it's 4chan too, right? So yeah. <laughs> they, they, you know, they get, get, they get gnarly. Um, but yeah, I mean, that created a wave and now, and then eventually we peaked out and we kind of, you know, popped and now we've stabilized at a much higher level of liquidity and market cap and circulating supply than we were before. So now we kind of are, um, I think alive and running and humming. We actually been growing for the last 30 days, which is great. Um, but the future is bright um, in the sense that now that we've built this new precious metal, which is ample, we're gonna now start building up the stack, these banks, right? So a lending platform that natively supports the asset um, derivatives and also um, automated market making platforms as well. And then we're also gonna be going cross chain. So it's, it's kind of like, imagine if you built Bitcoin and then you start to build exchanges and wallets and you know integrating with other things, except for it's today, there's a lot more to integrate with and a lot more to build. And there's this DeFi community and infrastructure. We built this precious metal and now we're gonna start building these banks. And, for the, and we'll be doing that for quite a while. And other folks are doing it too that aren't even, you know, they're just, it's a, it's a cool open source community. So some folks are just doing it on their own as well. That's awesome. I'm glad we're talking to the architect. I think I know someone right now who's forking uh, your code right now, actually. It's very funny. Nice. Um, so I guess... What are you most looking forward to with Ample? And what? how do people get a hold of Ample? And the best way to buy it right now is actually on Uniswap. So if you use MetaMask and um, you have some ETH, you can very easily kind of pick up some Ample there. You can also buy it on Bitfinex or FTX or Gate. Um, what am I looking forward to most? Yeah, I mean... Just continue, just making the asset more liquid and starting to really show what we mean by building block, right? We've been talking about it and we can describe these qualities um, to people like it can be used for contract domination, but really letting them play with it in that way requires us building up the stack. And now that we're doing that, I kind of want to just give people that aha moment as they play with it, you know, one level up on the stack, just like they did with the geyser. Um, but with other applications and um, yeah. And then, yeah, it's just kind of like Bitcoin. It really is kind of the same mission as Bitcoin. Eventually it's something that just needs to live on its own without requiring that we're there. Um, but yeah, I think increasing the liquidity of the asset, the saleability is, is just a, it's a critical monetary quality. It's like when I think about liquidity mining and somebody like uses that for a governance token, I'm like, okay, just because a governance token is liquid doesn't make it better. doesn't mean you can do more things or, or it doesn't mean the surface air, area of decisions you can make with that token gets better. But for a pure monetary asset like Ample, when you put it through a liquidity mining program and you make it more liquid, it actually has more utility. So there's a direct alignment there. And so, yeah, continue to kind of share the world, you know, spread the word and, and build on top of it is what excites me. Oh, well, we got one last question to ask you. In 10 words or less, can you describe blockchain? Okay. Or Bitcoin. Or Bitcoin. Or Bitcoin. Okay. Um, 
Bitcoin is a rules-based fixed supply digital commodity money. <laughs> Did that help? I, I, I would say there. Bitcoin was an attempt, and it was an attempt to break to create a system of money uh, that a digital system of money that exists outside of banks. So Bitcoin doesn't have a balance sheet of assets and liabilities, right? So yeah, it, it is an attempt to build a system of money that exists outside of banks. I like it. I like an attempt. I like it. You're like, it's an attempt. It was I. Right. It was I. Right. Well, but yeah, I know. Yeah, it. Yeah, it has just, succeeded. Just think about it. Think about it. You know, you can tweet at us because I know some people that we've had on before. They're like, oh wait, wait, wait. I, I thought of a really like a way better one, and then they tweeted out, and we're like, okay, yeah, you're right. You should have said that on the show. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, how about the yeah? If I come up with something better, I'll, I'll tweet it at you. <laughs> Sounds good. Nope. Um. Well, Evan, thank you for swinging by. Thank you for being the architect of <laughs> this awesome defininess that just just took everyone by storm this summer. Now is actually created. That's the cool thing about crypto is like once there's these little like FOMO spikes, there's some real genuine stuff that comes from it, and there's some real genuine education that happens. Like I heard DeFi, DeFi, DeFi. Then there was a FOMO spike that I got wind of. I think it was Friday night. I had like a bottle of wine and I was like, fuck it, I'm going DeFi. I think I even told Jesse. And now now I know a little bit more about like, oh, there's like these liquidity pools and, you know, I can get paid by adding liquidity to these pools and then I get these little liquidity tokens and I can put those in other liquidity. Like I learned a lot in that FOMO process. So yep. that's why I like that. So. Uh, thanks for coming by, man. Appreciate it. For sure. Thanks for having me. And we're back. If you enjoyed that interview, you'll enjoy it so much more. You should dive deep into our like library of interviews. We've interviewed a lot of people at this point. Um, anyone from uh, you know porn stars to scientists to economists. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you asking? Like, oh, Jesse's got a year or two years after the show. We, we've interviewed some porn stars, some escorts that accepted only Bitcoin. Oh, those are that was interesting. We interviewed the interesting. owner of the VIP club, which was a Bitcoin only strip club in Las Vegas. That was great. Uh, we interviewed Lil B. We've interviewed. We've tried to interview Young Jeezy for a long time. Not not really working. Uh, we tried to interview um, Little Dicky for a long time, not really working. Oh, why not? That would have been fun. One of these days. Oh, just because you know he's he's big time now. You know, I mean, he's now big he time. is. Yeah. Um, you know, we we we've interviewed all, everyone who's anything in crypto. Um, we've probably interviewed them, Andreas five or six times, uh, Mr. Pierce, uh, two two times. Um, who's the guy who runs Shapeshift? Eric, I don't know. Eric. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Eric. Uh, oh, no, it's not uh, Anyways, him. We've Eric. interviewed him. Voorhees, yeah. Yeah. Eric Voorhees three times. Uh, Roger Ver a couple times. Uh, we, we, we've got a whole laundry list of people that we've interviewed, and some of them great thinkers and contributors to the cryptocurrency space and industry. Others, um, not so much. Um Hope you'd enjoy. Um, so the book is currently like sold out. Uh, 
So we're working on spinning it up again, but we do have a book called In 10 Words or Less, Can You Describe Bitcoin, Blockchain, or Ethereum? Um, and once we have that going again, I can't even say when it's going to happen, but then you'll be able to get copies of our book. Um, and it's a nice coffee table read. Like it's a very short read. It's, it's mostly just a big picture of the person's face and their quote. And it's more about talking points about, um, you know, how people vision this tech. And you'll see like the growing opinions change from an escort and porn star to uh, eco uh, an economist. Right. You'll see how they actually define this Bitcoin thing and this, this blockchain, this Ethereum thing. Please join the Slack at thebitcoinpodcast.com. If you go to thebitcoinpodcast.com, you'll see our shows. You'll see everything. Go to the Slack. Join our Slack community. Um, it's a it's a it's a pretty good community of developers, thinkers. Uh, some of the people in the space have jobs inside of crypto as well. Um, you know, of course, Corey, myself, and Jesse are there. Um, it's a growing community. Very slow, too. I like the slow growth, unlike some people here named Jesse, Jesse, the man <laughs> broke, who want to go from he wants to go from from the first stone wheel to walking on Mars in two weeks. <laughs> like, all right, we got the wheel. What's next? Can you imagine if you know what's coming next and you're you're you get transported in time back to when the wheel was first invented and you're just like all right hold on everybody let me just make some shit for like a few months here i'm just gonna catch us up to speed here <laughs> you'd probably there'd probably be shrines and mountains with your face chiseled out of them and full <laughs> body sculptures uh you know giant dingling you know they'd give you a big hanger and just like <laughs> just what just if, full... if you couldn't right you couldn't uh, interact you just had to be an observer a participant in that time period right mm -hmm. and you had to watch people like you live forever right can you imagine how impatient you would get watching them roll the wheel it's a rectangle first they didn't even get the the, the round wheel right for like a hundred years mm-hmm <laughs> you're like let me just let me just make it let me just let me just let me just curve this out real quick let me just fix <laughs> it for you real quick let me just, let me just oh i didn't even realize that like they were just rolling it one side of a rectangle at a time <laughs> can you imagine the first like cave person who was like what the fuck is wrong with y'all just like just like curve it up what are you doing? <laughs> like every time you do that, all of your sticks fall off of the thing. You didn't think to just yeah. round it up, but like, fuck you, Theodore. You always got these big ass ideas, bitch. You're always just sitting around looking at shit. Anyways, because <laughs> cavemen were named Theodore and not, oh, but um. <laughs> anyways, I don't, we got off track. I was trying to sell us and you got me off track just sorry sorry go ahead continue uh yeah join the slack um and also please become a patron on patreon um i know that's like so 2013 
but like Patreon's pretty dope. It allows us to help pay the bills. It allows us to grow. We squirrel away these monies and then it allows us to add things to the show to so to keep us running running smooth and running better. We have some goals. I think if you see on the Patreon, we have one goal. If we hit that tier, we'll hire like a researcher because believe it or not, um, maybe I'd like to spew my mouth at things, but Corey and Jesse also like to have facts and like graphs and numbers and things. And um, we want to have like some sort of um, coherent data to present you guys with on these shows, but sometimes flipping them around every week, we don't have the time. So if we could hire a researcher, then, then we would, that was, that's, that's one of the things I know we're really looking for. If we can get that, that would be awesome. Um, join the Patreon. You'll get things. Um, shout out to Daniel. He right now is, is running our, uh, Patreon and helping us get that where we need it to be. Um, what else, Jesse, what else do we do? What do we do? We do stuff, you know, come and join the Slack. Hang out, join the conversation. We talk about a little bit of everything, and you might learn so much that you get a job. And we know like four people have done that in crypto. And you know, to get a job in crypto right now, you're in the primordial ooze of an industry. So you could really etch out a, a nice little future for yourself if you play your cards right. Um, other than that, thank you for listening. Thank you so much um, for listening week in and week out. For those of you that do, tell your mom, dad, tell your friends, right? Uh, about the Bitcoin podcast. So that's it. Um, yeah, go do all the stuff that we just asked you to do. I know it's a lot, but whatever. You guys got anything? You good? Good. All right. Shout out to Zoe Saldana, Michelle Obama, Megan Thee Stallion, Zotzi Beats. Um, and there were like three or five Instagram models that I wanted to name. But. <laughs> But uh, I forgot right before I got on on here. So, all right. Play the outro. Mm-hmm.